0: It's late January 1722 in Puerto Mayo, on the coast of Honduras. George Lowther's ship, the Delivery, is at a heel in a secluded, sandy cove. Lowther has ordered that his 250-ton flagship undergo some much-needed maintenance while the tide is out. To this end, his crew are painting hot tar onto her underside. In the sweltering heat, the black, sticky goo drips onto the beach below, fizzing as globules hit the cool seawater, lapping at the pirates' feet. Nearby, barrels of provisions have been uploaded onto the beach, sheltered under a canopy made from the ship's sails. Lowther's crew get drunk on beer and rum as they toil. They sing bawdy songs and tell even bawdier jokes. Despite the hot work, it's a moment pirates cherish. They're on shore, at ease and in good spirits. None of them have any notion that they're being watched. Not 200 yards away, from within the shadows of the dense, tropical woodland. Dozens of eyes study them, waiting for the moment to attack. Then, one sailor scouring the beach for firewood ventures a little too close to the trees. Hearing the rustling of branches, he expects to see a wild fowl, maybe a pig. His cry of terror is cut short as an axe flies through the air and slams into his chest. The Mayan Chiorti people are native to this place. They've suffered at the hand of foreign intruders before. This time, they are prepared to strike first. Armed with bows, spears, machetes, even muskets, the Chioti burst out of the forest, charging the unprepared pirates. Lowther himself is currently aboard one of his other three ships, anchored in the bay. Hearing the cries of panic, all he can do is watch in dismay as his men attempt to flee the onslaught of arrows and spears. Caught off guard and mostly drunk, the pirates abandon their own arms. Lowther curses. He had been wrongly informed that this stretch of coastline was uninhabited, so had not ordered any of his men to stand sentry. The mistake will cost him dear. Within seconds, hundreds of Chioti have overrun the beach and are taking possession of the unattended provisions. But the loss of hard-earned plunder is not the worst of it. The natives chop down his men as they sprint for the water. Lowther shouts for them to run, to swim for their lives. But he watches in horror, as dozens collapse and sink face down in the water. Arrows in their backs. Their blood stains the shore scarlet red. He orders his men on the ships to fire their guns at the beach, hoping to scare the native raiding party back while the rest of his men escape. Boats are also launched to retrieve the men who managed to swim into the deeper waters. That's when the delivery catches alight. Lowther curses again, despairing as his flagship goes up in flames. The spark must have touched a barrel of gunpowder or the hot tar, igniting the ship. Captain George Lowther, who against growing odds had achieved the impossible, command of a formidable pirate fleet and a large crew, is now back to square one. How precarious the fortunes of a pirate can be. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the Seven Seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers? or heroic underdogs. As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Since leading his mutiny against the Royal African Company a year ago, George Lowther has established himself as one of the more durable pirates of the late golden age. Lowther exhibits a cautious approach toward raiding ships, especially when compared to contemporaries such as Ned Lowe, his psychotic second-in-command. Although not averse to committing acts of shocking violence when necessary, Lowther does not share Lowes' view of piracy as a murderous war against the world. For Lowther, piracy is merely a means of survival. As far as he's concerned, any plunder he can forcibly seize from others is fair game. Which is ironic, considering how much of that plunder has just been seized from him. Once the surviving crew were rescued from the Chiorti and pulled onto the sloops. Lowther orders his diminished fleet to escape the kill zone of Puerto Mayo. His three small sloops sail away, abandoning the delivery still blazing on the shore. From the stern, Lowther looks back at the bonfire that was once his galley frigate and feels his heart ache with defeat. Not only has he lost his most powerful vessel and a small fortune in goods, He's lost something else, far more valuable. Many of the men killed were his best and most loyal pirates. Some had served with him for years, even before the mutiny and turned to piracy seven months ago. On the other hand, many of those who survived the attack unscathed are among the least willing, largely prisoners and forced men. And many of them seem visibly delighted to have witnessed their pirate captors receive a dose of their own vicious treatment. But most importantly, it has altered the balance of power on board the ships in their favor. Lowther knows only too well how fast mutiny can break out. He knows what has to be done. As his small fleet gets clear of Honduras, he orders that all three ships separate He places the prisoners and forced men on the two smaller sloops and grants them their freedom. Watching the released men sail off towards Boston, Lowther knows they will report on everything they've witnessed, including the destruction of the delivery. This will of course advertise his weakened status to the Royal Navy, but Lowther feels it can't be helped. Now, Lowther takes the largest remaining ship, a 10-gun sloop called the Ranger, and fills it with the fiercest, most formidable pirates he has left. These are the last dregs of Atlantic piracy, the hardest and most desperate men still sailing under the black flag. Among the most dangerous of his current crew is his new lieutenant, the soon-to-be notorious Edward Lowe. In a matter of weeks, the newcomer has established himself as a leader, and a cruel leader at that. The Alliance came at a good time for Lowther so soon after separating with his former co-captain John Massey, but Lowther soon realized that the two men couldn't be more different. Massey was reasonable and humane, to a fault perhaps. He was also someone Lowther could control. To his credit, at times Massey had exercised some control himself, preventing Lowther from committing unnecessary violence against their victims, arguing that such crimes would intensify the hunt for them. It was a useful relationship for a time. But that time has passed, and his new partner, Ned Lowe, stands in stark contrast. Though still a novice, Lowe relishes barbarism and cruelty. Experts have even suggested that Lowther may have initially mentored Low in this use of terrible force. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Read.
1: George Lowther was able to become a pirate captain because he was very charismatic and people were naturally drawn to him. People also seem to enjoy how Lowther would always just spring into action even though it was done in a brutal way. But it seems like no matter what, that Lowther was always leading his crew into something. And so as a result, he's attracting pirates who are also looking for more brutal tactics of attacks. So that way they can get wealthier faster and also sail a lot further into more exotic locales. And this attracted pirates such as Ned Lowe and Francis Spriggs, two pirates who would become famous in their own right. And one of whom Ned Lowe in particular would become very violent and very deadly. Ned Lowe would take what he learned from George Lowther and basically run with it and make it a lot more extreme. A lot of pirates did do this. They would learn something from a pirate they sailed under and then they would become a captain and then they would kind of take it to the next steps. And so Lowther, already being quite brutal, naturally was able to send out sort of protégés into the world that would be even more terrifying.
0: According to reports, Lowther himself wasn't adverse to the use of vicious tactics when raiding ships. Later newspaper articles will identify some of his acts as being as horrific as any contemporary pirate. In any case, he will soon be dwarfed by his infamous lieutenant. When it comes to violence, the student soon becomes the master.
1: Both George Lowther and Ned Lowe were known to torture victims and disembowel victims. But the thing that made them different, though, was that George Lowther had a very specific purpose for this, whereas Ned Lowe just simply enjoyed torturing people. George Lowther forced people to become members of the crew, and if they resisted, this is when the torture would start, pretty much until the victims either died or, more likely, joined the crew. Ned Lowe, on the other hand, he wasn't even necessarily interested in building a very large crew or a very large fleet. He just really wanted to torture victims into submission, or just to kill them for sport.
0: Over the following months, Lowther and his crew travel in an easterly direction across the Caribbean. They survive by raiding ships, although this stretch of sea does not yield as many wealthy merchant vessels as they would like. Their supplies start to run out, and Lowther feels descent brewing below decks once again. He starts to suspect that many of these pirates would rather be led by a less cautious leader, like Ned Lowe. And Lowe himself has done nothing to dissuade this sentiment from taking root. But Lowther, smart as ever, knows how and when to head off this kind of disaster. On May 28th, 1722, he gets his chance. The ranger seizes a brigantine sailing for Boston, called the Rebecca, Seemingly out of the blue, Lowther makes a gift of the Rebecca to Ned Low and announces that it is time to end their five-month partnership. It's time for Low to strike out on his own. Low is delighted by his captain's generosity, even more so when Lowther permits many of the wilder pirates to sail away with him, including the next up-and-coming maniac, Francis Spriggs it's a typically smart play from Lowther. He knows that few survive the pirate life for long, especially those like Lowe and Spriggs who enjoy creating havoc and drawing attention to themselves. Though no saint himself, Lowther's no fool either. Craig S. Chapman is a military historian, author of Disaster on the Spanish Main and a forthcoming biography of George Lowther.
2: And he's kind of careful about it. If you look at uh, the number of ships that he seizes versus Ned Lowe, he's capturing maybe half or a third as many ships as somebody like Ned Lowe, who obviously didn't give a damn about anything other than getting back at the world. (laughs) So that tells me that, you know, he probably looked at some ships and said, nah, I don't want to take that one on. The other thing is... When he's made a significant capture and he knows that there's a Navy ship nearby, he deliberately dodges. After that piracy off of Barbados, their first piracy, he knew that the ship that they had just taken and released was going to go straight to Barbados and alert the Navy station ships and that they were going to come looking for him. He sets up a false narrative about, oh, we're sailing here, and then he scoots in a different direction.
0: Despite employing cautious tactics, Lowther can't avoid risk altogether. While touring the Carolina coast, the Ranger attacks a merchant vessel called the Amy, anticipating an easy victory. For when the vessel returns fire, the Ranger suffers serious damage. But this is when Lowther's earlier strategies pay off. In early 1723, once again in the Bay of Honduras, nearly a year after parting ways with each other, Lowther crosses paths with his old lieutenant, Ned Lowe. The captains greet each other warmly, though it is abundantly clear the former apprentice has done better since the two parted. Lowe commands a larger crew, and his powerful flagship, the Fortune, whose hold is packed with plunder, is far superior to Lowther's aging vessel. This time, It is Lowe who invites Lowther to join forces again for a brief period raiding Spanish vessels north of the Virgin Islands. The alliance is a success. After a string of victories, they capture a Rhode Island sloop that is far superior to Lowther's. Lowe is only too happy to return the favor once granted to him, giving the prize to Lowther. By the time the two captains part ways again in the summer of 1723, Lowther's situation has vastly improved. As well as the new ship, he has grown richer from successful raids. He renames the new sloop The Fortune's Free Gift as a tribute to Lowe and sets sail southwards towards South America. Lowther is playing it smart once again, sailing south away from danger as Lowe once again heads north and into the lion's den of colonial shipping and Royal Navy patrols. But Lowther's luck is about to turn once more.
1: George Lowther and his men began to sail towards the island of Blanquilla off the coast of Venezuela. Now, while they were there, they came across a ship called the HMS Eagle. And this was a bit of a surprise for Lowther and the rest of the crew and they were not prepared or ready to engage in any sort of fight. The HMS Eagle was captained by a man named Walter Moore. Now, whether or not Walter Moore was actually there looking for pirates specifically is unknown. It's possible that he was there just kind of more to monitor things in general. Venezuela was in the middle of a lot of major trading lanes. The slave trade was coming through that area as well. It was very, very active. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you.
2: You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on
1: actual events. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from ParCast Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them.
2: Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify.
0: It's October 1723, on the shores of La Blanquilla Island, off the coast of Venezuela. Inside his cabin, George Lowther consults his charts, looking for a suitable place for the fortune's free gift to refit and resupply. Since the disaster of Puerto Mayo, he has become wary of resting his ship anywhere unfamiliar. But Blanquilla is well known as a secluded, uninhabited place where pirates can careen in peace. But less than a day after anchoring the ship near the shore, her sails are down and an alarm is sounded from the deck. Lowther rushes up and is handed a spyglass by one of his crew. Through it, he sees the HMS Eagle heading straight toward them, her colors hoisted, The South Seas Company, a British slaver, one that's no doubt well-armed and prepared to fight. The Eagle fires a single shot at the pirate's sloop, which Lowther understands to be a demand. They want them to hoist their own colors. Lowther curses his bad luck. He orders his men to hoist the St. George's flag and to return a shot, to communicate they have complied. He hopes they buy it. But the Eagle keeps coming. Lowther shouts for his men to pull up the anchors, but he knows that escape is impossible. The Eagle is coming in too fast. With only the pirates' forward guns ready to fire, victory in a ranged fight seems unlikely. Still, they might prevail in close combat. And they may still have the element of surprise. Lowther decides to let the eagle approach before getting the first shot in. He just hopes they're not ready for battle. After several tense minutes that feel like an eternity, she finally comes into range. Lowther gives the order to fire. Cannonballs smash into the deck of the eagle. At this distance, Lowther can see the splintering wood and hear the cries of injured men. And as the smoke clears, he can also see the glinting rows of heavy cannon, all rolled out and ready to fire. Lowther is too experienced to fight a battle that's already lost. Before the balls of red-hot iron can rip into his ship and crew, he turns and sprints to the stern of the sloop. Within a few short minutes, The pirates will be begging for mercy and waving the white flag. But Lowther has no intention of surrendering. Along with 13 of his most loyal crewmen, Lowther dashes below deck and heads for his cabin. There, he opens the rear window and looks down to the sea. Anchored as they are in the shallows, The distance to shore is swimmable. With nothing else to lose, he and his men jump from the window. And not a second too soon, the eagle unleashes a full broadside against the pirate sloop. As Lowther swims away, he hears the thunder of cannon and the cries of devastation unfolding behind him. His ship, Fortune's free gift is lost. Wading through the water, Lowther and his men finally emerge onto the land, clothes dripping wet, satchels and bundles of valuables slung around them. As luck would have it, earlier that day they had already begun depositing provisions on shore ahead of careening the pirates now run toward the supplies, desperately grabbing whatever they can. Then, with a last look at his beleaguered ship, Lowther and his band dash into the scrublands and forest beyond, determined to evade capture. The Eagle's commander, Walter Moore, soon learns from his prisoners that the infamous George Lowther was captain of his captured pirate ship. And that he's no longer on board. Among other capital crimes, Lowther is wanted for performing a mutiny on a Royal African Company slave ship. Keen to take credit for capturing such a notorious criminal, Moore sends a search party to scour the island. But after several days searching, they find no sign of the renegade pirates. Moore realizes he cannot delay here much longer. Setting sail with his prize in tow, they make for nearby Cumaná, where he alerts the Spanish authorities that some wanted pirates are stranded on their island. After all, he thinks, as the eagle sails away, Lowther isn't going anywhere.
2: So they're marooned. They're marooned with probably very few provisions left on the on the shore. Probably nothing more than what they were able to carry on their backs as they were running away. Blanco Island is kind of a miserable little spot. It's uninhabited even now. It has a freshwater spring near
0: the careening spot, but that's about it. Stranded on La Banquilla, chances of survival seem slim. For days. He sits on the beach, staring out at the empty horizon. Filled with despair, he wonders what his next move could possibly be. There is a chance, he supposes, that a friendly vessel could pass by. But even on a British ship, the chances are he'll be recognized and hauled in front of an admiralty court, where he is certain to be found guilty of both mutiny and piracy. He will be hanged from the neck like so many pirates before him. If the Spanish find him, he'll be killed as an interloper, or a pirate, or both. And if he continues to evade capture, he will surely starve to death on this desolate rock, this fatal island. He's doomed. Lowther feels the weight of his loaded pistol resting in his lap. He privately vows not to be taken alive. It's late February 1724 on Blanquilla Island, six months after Lowther and his small band of pirates were marooned here. A team of British hunters row up to the beach on several small boats. These men have been charged with discovering once and for all what exactly has happened to the last of the infamous pirate captains. By now, most of the notorious pirates of legend are dead. Blackbeard, Sam Bellamy, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie, Bart Roberts, and so many others have all met with bloody endings. Their individual stories collectively proving that a notorious life of piracy inevitably leads to disgrace and death. The only pirate celebrities still officially at large are George Lowther, and Ned Lowe, both of whom apparently vanished and are presumed dead. But there is still great political pressure throughout the ocean-going world to locate and wipe out the last stragglers of the so-called Golden Age. And even though the local Spanish authorities have already sent search parties to find Lowther, until now they have yielded no results. And so the British hunters have been sent here with strict instructions. Find George Lowther, dead or alive. Justice must be done. After several days of searching a remote part of the island, one of the hunters cries out to the others. They find the decomposing, insect-infested corpse of a man. His fractured skull and the remains of scorched flesh suggest a death by a point-blank gunshot. The empty pistol lying beside him tells the rest of the story. Facing starvation, or the madness of marooning, this man appears to have ended his own life. The decay makes identification difficult. One hunter observes that the dead man is dressed like a ship's captain, a fine coat, buttons still gleaming in the sun. Keen for their mission to be complete, the hunters decide that this must be their man. After all, if it isn't, what are the odds of the real George Lowther showing up to contradict them? And so they return to the colony of St. Kitts, with the report that George Lowther has perished, his life another cautionary tale against the laws of piracy. Very soon, word of his death was widely reported around the world.
1: Lowther's fate on Blanquilla did make it to the newspapers, and there were a lot of kind of different ideas about what may have happened. The most detail we get are the articles that showed up in the London Journal between June and August. These newspaper articles spared no detail about anything that happened on Blanquia and the way that George Lowther and his men would fight. The end of the article claims that George Lowther ended up dying by suicide on the island rather than getting caught by anyone who was pursuing him. And this is the only real piece of evidence we have to describe the death of George Lowther. Everywhere else, it's sort of described that he disappears.
0: Just a year later, Charles Johnson's best-selling pirate history is published. His principal sources for George Lowther appear to be taken from the trial of John Massey, at which he was present, and the newspaper accounts of Lowther's crimes and apparent death. Lowther's demise is described in one bleak line. As for Captain Lowther, it is said that he afterwards shot himself upon that fatal island where his piracies ended, being found by some Sloop's men, dead, and a pistol burst by his side. To this day, Johnson's book remains the essential historical account concerning the lives of Golden Age Pirates, and his version has been dominating the popular imagination ever since.
1: The book A General History of the Pirates was a smash hit when it was published in 1724. People clamored after this because it was a collection of pirate biographies that were very, very detailed, and they covered pirate biographies from all the most infamous ones dating back into the late 1600s. They included people like Henry Avery, Captain Kidd, Edward Teach, Charles Vane, Benjamin Hornigold, all the big names that we know of. And also, during the 18th century, it didn't take quite as long to be able to publish a book, which means a lot of information in a general history of the pirates was very, very, very contemporary. It included a biography of George Lowther, and this is around the same time his actions have been reported in the London Journal in 1724. So this information is able to go widely out into the public very quickly. The book was so popular that every year for decades after this, they were publishing new volumes of it. In 1725, there was a whole new volume added to a general history of the pirates, doubling its length. In 1726, it was published again with a very beautiful, gilded, decorative cover. And the book was advertised in newspapers pretty steadily well after the 1750s. It never, ever went out of print, which just shows how popular it was.
0: And that, as far as most historians are concerned, is where the story of George Lowther ends. Until now, new research has revealed a new ending to Lowther's tale one that the history of piracy has completely overlooked. Rather than taking his own life on La Blanquilla, this new account asserts that Lowther in fact escapes that fatal island, and the body of another dead pirate is misidentified as him. But even the researcher who has uncovered these new links can only speculate as to how Lowther got away from La Blanquilla. Now what
2: did Lowther do? How did he get off the island? There's no way of telling. I mean, there are a couple theories. One, Lauter may have deliberately staged a fake suicide to throw off the scent and somehow got off the island. Or he got off the island and left one of his men who became despondent and shot himself. There are ways that you can get off of a deserted island. Probably the most likely is for him is if another pirate stopped by and he hopped aboard or maybe a merchant ship Somebody may have come by, and he got off the island, maybe masquerading as a legitimate mariner. We don't know, uh, but he does get off the
0: island. Not only does George Lowther escape, he goes on to do what every pirate dreams of. He slips quietly away into happy retirement in a tropical paradise. It's 1739 in the bustling port town of Portobello in Panama, Central America. Sixteen years since the events on La Blanquilla Island. The pirate curse has long been extinguished. Those flamboyant criminals consigned to the history books. Portobello is considered one of the most prosperous places in the Spanish colonies. Through this vital port, a fortune in Peruvian silver and other valued goods are exported internationally every year. Young, ambitious traders flock from across the world to get a piece of the action. Although the established merchant class of the city is mainly populated by locals and Spaniards, there is one outsider, a successful middle-aged Englishman who is known and respected among the community. This merchant is married He has a wife named Mary, and two daughters named Sarah and Grace. They are an affluent family and enjoy a good life in Portobello, a peaceful life. But ever since he arrived decades earlier, the merchant has remained tight-lipped about his past. As a result, few people know that this man is in fact the infamous pirate George Lowther.
2: We know from documents that he did some construction work. In other words, he built some roads in Panama with his slave labor. Obviously, he had been a familiar figure to other British merchants who were there in Portobello. He's not in a cave somewhere, but I imagine he's passing himself off as a legitimate merchant. But there's no doubt he's had a complete change of heart. He apparently took the opportunity to put a pirate life behind him.
0: Considering the widespread popularity of Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates and the newspaper reports at the time, it is likely that Lowther read of his own sad demise on La Blanquilla. He is aware that most people think he is dead, especially the people that matter, the authorities, which, for a man wanted on the capital charges of murder, mutiny and piracy, is very much to his advantage. But Lowther's prosperous life in this Spanish colony is about to be shattered. Over the past eight years, yet another conflict has been brewing between the British and Spanish empires. War seems imminent once again, and Lowther's home of Portobello is about to be caught right at the center of it.
2: There is a long period of commercial contention going on in the West Indies of the rising middle uh, merchant class in Britain is getting more and more offended by, you know, the Spanish trade practices in in the West Indies. The Spaniards imposed an onerous trade monopoly on their own uh, colonies, which, of course, is a ripe opportunity for other nations' merchants to slide in and smuggle lower-priced goods and make huge fortunes themselves. Spain reacts by sending out Guarda Costas, their Coast Guard, which are privateers who are commissioned by local Spanish authorities to haul in smugglers and condemn the craft and they get to pocket uh, the prize money for that. So the Guarda Costas are essentially legitimized pirates preying on British,
0: Dutch, French merchants who are doing business in the West Indies. With British forces mobilizing, war is about to descend on the Spanish Americas. And in a remarkable twist of fate, George Lowther's many lives are about to catch up with him. Next week on Real Pirates. War explodes in the Spanish West Indies. But when Vice-Admiral Edward Vernon discovers the infamous former pirate George Lowther living as a merchant in Portobello, he has a choice to make. This is a man wanted for capital crimes, an infamous traitor to the crown. Then again, in times of war, veteran seafarers are a vital asset and Vernon needs all the help he can get. With Lowther's world turned upside down and his new life stripped away, he must once again do what he can to survive. That's next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parkast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Warrow for Parkast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by James Benmore. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres-Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.